please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the words of our Lord. We thank you, Lord, that even though for a time there may be weeping, even in the church now, that there is uh, a gift of joy for us to be received even this morning and a great gift of joy to be enjoyed in the coming kingdom when all the tears will be wiped away. Lord, we pray that this morning a joy would um, grow in us. We pray that we would grow as your children, as your sons and daughters, members of your family, to the glory of your name. Amen. You may be seated. This uh, gospel this morning had me thinking about the sorrows that we experience in the world a little bit. And Jesus is talking about some sorrows that the disciples are about to um, experience because he's going to go to the cross. It's not something that they fully grasp, but they, they feel some gravity at this point because he's talking about going away for a little while and that they'll be sorrowful, but then there'll be joy. It's not entirely clear to them what that means, but... He's been saying things along these lines for a while, been saying that it's actually good that I go because I'm going to send the other helper. It's good that I go because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And if you really understood what was happening, you would, you would be joyful because I'm going to the Father and he's greater than I am. And I want my joy to be your joy and I want that joy to be full. But right in the next few days, there's going to be sorrow. We have trouble in the world. He also talks about that, but he's overcome the world. But there is, in our experience, trouble. And they certainly experience that. But he promises that there will be joy on the other side of the sorrow. I want to explore that a little bit, but I want to start by just saying one of the sorrows that I think all of us have felt quite a bit, and maybe... Um, if you've paid any attention to the news in the last several weeks, or if you've got the same Facebook feed that I do, it's just like it keeps on happening again and again that there are these sorrows related to how the, how the church has really failed the children of God. And not only failed the children of God, but betrayed him and them. And, and you've seen it, and it's, it's, it's not denominationally specific. Uh, I see it in the evangelical church. I mean, pastor after pastor after pastor has been um, taken to task and in some cases even jailed for having taken advantage of their power and influence over people. We see it in the Catholic church most recently. In our own tradition, in the Anglican tradition, particularly in the West, we've seen it a good bit. And it's, it's, to me, it's just, it's sad. It's heartbreaking even. Because I think one of the things that I, uh, the Lord has come to give to us is, is a place that's actually safe. It's actually meant to be like a home. And a home is supposed to be a safe place. A home is supposed to be a place where you can actually raise up kids. And they're going to be okay, even though they're vulnerable and they're, they're innocent. At least until they're a toddler. <laughs> And, and it doesn't, doesn't feel that way right now. In some respects, it's, it's kind of like in my face. And, and I, there, there's a lot of sorrow that comes with that, isn't it? I think that the gift of this morning's gospel 
is that the Lord really has come to take us through even that kind of sorrow. When the world starts to infect the church and the church starts to behave a lot more like the world, which is what we see happening here, the Lord's going to take us through that. And on the other side of it, he will minister a joy that nobody can take away. But in this world, we have trouble. And sometimes it infects the church. And sometimes it gets a hold of the church because in our own lives, we've started to live like the world. The way John describes it is he talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And we see this a lot. We see that these, these leaders have used their power to prey on others. They've pastured themselves on the sheep is how Isaiah puts it. And in some cases, that is related even to like an envy that they want to take into themselves, something beautiful that they see in somebody else that they want to consume for themselves. It's a really evil thing. It's a malevolent thing. But there's also this reality that um, I think a lot of it does have to do with power. It's, it's, it's both on the one hand lust, but it's also about power. I, I think we misdiagnose it if we don't see both. You have all of this wealth, all of this power, all of this prestige. I mean, for, for years, I just admired so much the way that Bill Hybels was leading Willow Creek. And the, it was a, this incredible expression of corporate power invading the church. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking now, like, the church isn't meant to be a commercial enterprise. It shouldn't feel that way. And yet, I, for many years, I was sort of admiring it. And it, it ended up being, I think, part of the problem. There's others, too. It reminds me of the, the story of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. He's with one of his disciples. I've shared this a couple times. Near the end of his life, and he's walking through the city of Rome, and his disciples saying, wow, look at all these incredible buildings, and look at the beauty of these buildings. It reminds me a little bit of how the disciples say, look at the, the temple stones. Isn't it beautiful? And Thomas, uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the disciple says to Thomas, um, man, the disciples didn't, you know, they couldn't say that they had all this. Um, and Thomas says, well, they didn't have all this, but we can't say rise up and walk. You know, the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. The real gift. The real joy. The real wealth that lasts. And I think that that, in many respects, is what the Lord wants to restore to us. This um, way of thinking about the church as an organization or a... Um, or like a, a power structure in the way that we think of the world. It's, I, the Lord's been really dismantling this for me in this last year, and a lot of it has to do with John. I think John is at pains. He's at pains to say, um, the church is supposed to be like a home. Jesus is saying to his disciples, come stay with me and abide with me. And, um, and then, you know, he's inviting people to, to do that, and then there's all these other things that he's doing too that speaks of the church as a woman. There's this incredible phrase that Cyprian says. He says, um, you cannot have God as your father if you don't have the church as your mother. 
And Jesus has come so that we would be returned to this way of life that is a lot more like a home than anything else. And we're meant to have our Father in heaven. It's his Father, and he shares his Father with us. And we're meant to, in the spirit, through the ministry of the church, be mothered into that, even in our fleshly existence, in the down-to-earth realities of our life, in this relational context. We're meant to be mothered into that. The Lord has really been ministering that to me in different ways. One of the ways was I was in um, the Holy Sepulchre. A lot of you know that I was in um, Jerusalem and and Israel for a good while during the summer. And in the Holy Sepulchre is what used to be the place of the garden of which, which had Golgotha there and the garden which had the tomb there. And now it's turned into this big basilica, this gigantic building. It's very impressive. I thought of Thomas Aquinas at that moment. <laughs> and, you know, you go there during the day and it's just infested with, um, I, 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 I mean, I guess they would think of themselves as pilgrims perhaps, but I also felt like it was just like you feel like, a, like cattle just being pushed through the line, so to speak, and you're checking off the list. Okay, good, I get to see the Holy Sepulchre now. I get to see this place where the Lord is crucified and then this place where he rose from the dead out of the tomb, and um, it just feels very, I don't know, it's, it just makes you disconnect. It doesn't feel like relational at all. Um, it's impressive. There's lots of beauty in it. But that was my experience one afternoon when we were there. And then I went off to the side uh, and I saw this little bold relief kind of a statue behind the altar. And I want to show it to you if you can see it. Um, It just caught my eye. I thought that, boy, what a beautiful thing. But I have no idea what it is. Maybe you can make it out. Can can you guys kind of see it? I know it's got to be small, especially for those of you in the back. Sue, you can come back and see it after the church. <laughs> well, what it is, is it's this, this picture of, of this male figure with his hand up like this, and he's kind of like, like this, you know? And then there's this woman on the other side, and she's reaching in towards him and touching his side. And I thought, man, that's beautiful. And, um, but I, couldn't, I just couldn't figure out what it was. Is it... Well, I had some speculations. So I saw this priest. He was about to go do mass. He was a Roman Catholic priest. And I'm like, what is that there? I mean, I, I love it. It's beautiful. But what is it? And he said, what do you think it is? And I, I, so I, I was on the spot. I had to say, well, I was sheepish, embarrassed to say, well, I mean, it looks, is it maybe Adam and Eve after they're like restored? Or is it, is it? You know, Solomon and his bride, like in the Song of Songs, you know, is it, is it possibly that? And he said, oh, it's completely dysfunctional. That's what he said about this thing. He was like, and he was so disdainful. I'm like, what do you mean? I think it's beautiful. He said, well, it's supposed to be Mary Magdalene in the garden after the Lord is risen. And then, of course, I'm looking at it. I'm thinking, yeah, that's what it is. Um... And it just, it, it, it really, it was, a, it was a jarring experience because on the one hand, I mean, I've got all this commotion going on and I'm not really connecting to it all. And then I connect to one thing and then there's all this disdain that's coming with it. But I realize it's, it's Mary Magdalene and it's at that moment in the garden when he's, she's, she just all of a sudden, because he says her name, she thought he was the gardener. 
And he says her name, and, and, and he says, Mary, and she says, Rabboni, teacher. And, and she starts to cling to him because he's risen. And like the joy, I mean, she's been weeping. I mean, that's the whole point. She's been weeping in sorrow because her master had died, and now the body was even taken away so that she couldn't even properly grieve. And there he is, Rabboni. And she's filled with joy, and she's clinging to him like she's never going to let go. And then Jesus says this thing, which I would think would cause a little bit of sorrow once again. He says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. He says, okay, I wanna, I'm going to send you now to the, my brothers. I want you to tell them that I'm ascending to my father, your father. I'm ascending to my God, your God. And so she goes and she says that. What's interesting is he doesn't address her by her name. He says, woman. That began to unfold a lot of things for me because one of the things that I started to think about as I looked at that passage this summer, it's like, Look, I'm not, I'm not one of these weird progressives or weird Gnostic people that write movies and, you know, imagine that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and that he was actually married to her. I mean, that's bogus. There's like absolutely nothing at all. No historian would even come close to thinking that. But what started to happen for me is there was something about the expression that was a little bit like, it felt a little bit like, yeah, Song of Songs. It felt a little bit like Adam and Eve. Why? And then there's this word, don't cling to me. For I've not yet ascended to my father. And I thought that's, that's so much like the, the way that the Lord describes husband and wife, you know, that you're going to leave your parents and cleave to one another, cling to one another. It's a, it's a very strong word. So there's this thing in, in Mary Magdalene as a woman, and her name is not used, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. That's meant to portray something, and we're supposed to enter into that. This happens several times throughout John. He, um, the first time it happens, he talks about actually his mother. Um, she's also called woman in that passage. You remember it? The wedding of Cana? So in, in that context, You've got um, Jesus' very first sign, and it's at a wedding. It's at a wedding feast. And they've just run out of wine, and Mary, but it's just referred to as mother, comes to Jesus and said they've run out of wine. And he says, what is this between you and me? What does this have to do in common with you and me because it's not my hour yet? And what he's kind of saying is that there's something that you and I both really care about that we're both involved with, and this is not the hour. This is not the time. But she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Um, he says to her, woman, what does this have to do with you and me? I think it's significant and, and, and more and more um, of the uh, great tradition, as I get to know it, just demonstrates what I'm saying. There's a wonderful book, too, by a guy named um, uh, Hart. 
Addison Hodges Hart. And uh, it's called The Woman, the Hour, and the Garden, if you want to go into this a good bit. The second time it happens in his gospel is, um, it's actually with the woman at the well. She also is not named. She's referred to as woman. And uh, that's when Jesus is saying to her, you know, if you knew who I was, you would ask for living water. Oh, but you don't have anything to draw it up. Well, I, I, um, I would give you living water if you asked for it. And um, she, he says something to her, and she realizes he can see into her heart. And um, he says, go, go bring your husband here. She says, I, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're being honest. You're being confessional. Because you've had five husbands. You're a prophet. He realizes that she's a prophet, that he's a prophet. She realizes that he's a prophet. And then she goes to her town, and she says, come meet a man who's told me everything that I ever did. I think he's the Messiah. And people start to believe because she's bearing testimony to it. And then they come, and at the end, he actually stays with them. And that's the same word. He makes home with them for three days. And then they say at the end of that, well, we've come to believe because we've actually now heard words for ourselves, not just because you were telling us the words. Now we know it. We know it personally. We've heard the words. And so now we're part of this too, and we believe. It's an interesting thing between Jesus and the woman. Just as there was with Mary and this abundance that happens. An interesting thing that happens. Um, the next time that we see this is the passage that we're looking at this morning. Actually, that's not quite true. There's this other insertion of the woman who's being accused of adultery. I'm not going to go into that right now. But I want to go to the next one, which is in this passage, and that's what we're trying to really understand is this, this, this depiction of both sorrow that the woman has that then turns into joy because humanity has been born. And I'm saying it that way on purpose. Because the word there is anthropos. It's humanity has been born. Something has just happened through this process of travail and of sorrow and of weeping and lamenting and humanity has just been born and so you have joy because there's a new life that's been born into the world. And then the very next time after that, you've got um, Jesus on the cross and um, John and Mary are at the foot of the cross. Neither of them are named. Jesus ad addresses his own mother, and um, it is now the hour. And he says to her, this is your son. And he says to the beloved disciple, this is your mother. And from that hour, he takes her into his home. From that hour. That is the hour. It's, 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 it's like, and this is what the fathers would say, is at that moment, the church is born in, in germ, if you will. It's born in its beginning first expression. This picture of woman and disciple. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture that John continues to carry forward. And it, it ultimately ends up even with Mary Magdalene. And in this case, the sorrow is no longer about the sorrow of death unresolved because death is being resolved right there. 
Now I think the sorrow has a little bit more to do with the fact I'm still, it's, it's, it's not time to cling to me yet because I have to ascend to the Father and it's good that I go because if I go, I will come and I will be in you. And I will make my home in you. The Father in me and I in you and you in the Father. And there's this gift that happens right there. Home happens right there. And so Mary bears witness to the apostles and um, what's interesting is that the apostles receive Jesus coming to them and he breathes into them life through the Spirit. And he says, receive my Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of others, they will be forgiven. And he breathes into them life. And that's a really critical expression of the Spirit because right from the beginning of the Gospel it says, we were originally created to have this life that God breathed into and then we lost it. And he wants us to be these living ones, these ones who are breathed into by God. And that's the way throughout his entire gospel he's been talking about life. It's about divine life. It's about life breathed into by the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Through the gift of his sacrifice now glorified and breathed into the church. That's what he's wanted to bring back to us and restore to us. Life breathed into by the Spirit. That's what it means to be a living one, a living soul now, not one that's going to die in the dust, but one that's living in a life that will no longer expire, if you will, because the Holy Spirit is going to continue to cause you to live. And the way that Jesus describes this throughout John, and John holds on to it, is that this is called eternal life. It's called, in, in the Greek, zoe. And that word shows up again and again and again. If you don't have eternal life, you're going to perish, and I've come to give you this Zoe, this eternal life. And why I'm calling that out, it's a lot of extra, I don't normally go into so much kind of like language detail, but I'm calling it out because when, when um, the, the Jews translated the Old Testament into the Greek, and Adam in Genesis two or three says he called the woman, Eve. In the Greek, it's Zoe. So every time, and that was well known to the Jews, so every time that, you know, the people in that community were hearing John speak of the life, the eternal life, he's saying that word, Zoe. Ultimately, John carries this into his letters. He talks about writing to the elect lady and her children who are following the truth, who are keeping his words is how he puts it in Revelation 12. So the, the lady who gave birth to the man who's taken up into heaven and then that really made the enemy mad. So he's coming after her, the woman, again, and her other offspring. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful portrayal. I think what God has been saying, and, that, and this is all, these are all symbols, right? I mean, John loves symbols, and it's, these are very human symbols. But I think what he's trying to say is in this context right here, like this relational context, if we are fully to enter into life, we need to be 
fathered by our Father in heaven through the gift of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. And we need some spiritual fathers who can remind us of what that's like. But we also need to be mothered. And in this very human fellowship, if we're keeping his words and we're full of the Spirit, we will mother children. I think John is, he's so organic. He's like, you've got to be born into this. He says to Nicodemus, you've got to be born into it. And you have to um, live in it and participate in it. It's this constant, organic expression, but it's always in the context of relationship in John. And it's always in the context of home for John. And he's not getting, he's not, not nailing it down really, really hard. Like Mary is, is his earthly mother, but she's in this gospel meant to give a hint at what mothering looks like through the church. Well, what does this mean for us? I want us to um, take away a few things that I think could be helpful for us in our life. Um, I mean, one is that if you um, think about home, you've got to be there. You've got to live there. You actually have to come together. Um, I think um, in our world, that's pretty hard to do. We are so occupied with other things that we, even when we're sitting here physically, we're not totally here. So that's one thing is that when you uh, think of a good mother, and I think especially of a good Jewish mother, it's like, come on, spend some time here. Is it such, such a problem to be here, to be fully here, to be really with one another, to be really with me? So I want to care for you, and I want to express that care through this very human fellowship. And especially those of us who maybe didn't grow up with a mom or in some ways our mom hurt us, we need it even more. We need that mothering care that the church filled with the Holy Spirit actually can provide. So I think come, come together is a really big part of it. Gather in his name and do it a lot. One of the things that you see described of, of Mary, right, in the wedding of Cana and described of the lady, the elect lady in his epistles, as well as the woman in Revelation, is that she makes sure the disciples keep Jesus' words. She keeps his words, and she makes sure the disciples keep his words. It's a wonderful reversal of, in, in many ways, the fall, right? Because Jesus is the obedient Adam, and the church, the real church who obeys and keeps his words, is the obedient Eve. And the true church helps all of her children keep the words. And if you think about a family, like a really good family has an identity. It used to be that they would, they would call them a household code in the old days. And a really good family has an identity. Like our, we're Olsons, and there's an Olson way of being. Well, there's a, there's a family way of being for the family of God. And Jesus has those words. And so... What we see with John, he kind of learned, I think, maybe a little bit from Mary. It says of Mary that she pondered all these things in her heart, and she stored them away, and then, of course, she's sharing it with the apostles, and she's living in his home, so I know he's taking it in big time, and he's also remembering every word, particularly because the Holy Spirit has come to help him remember it. So cherish those words. Be at the feet of Jesus a lot. 
I think the other thing about us that we could maybe take home is it's, it is very relational. And one of the things that a mother does is when relationships get frayed and there's a break in relationship, she's the first one to intervene and say, hey, why don't you come back together? A real mother has the spirit of the home, if you will, and she so cares about all of her children, she wants to make sure all of the children remain close to the father and all the children remain true to the legacy that he's, he's brought. And if they're kind of wandering out, she'll gather them in. The father might bring a hard word, but she'll gather them in and make sure that they're restored to him. But it also requires for the disciples to listen to that kind of wisdom. And it's, it's a challenging wisdom because a lot of times we don't want to reconcile. You know, um, John says in his first letter that you can't say you know God or you love God if you hate your brother. So many respects what John is saying is I, I, I want you to remain in the, in the gift of this family which is mothered by true church and you, you do that by loving one another and you do that by forgiving one another. And Jesus is, through his, his love on the cross is the means of that forgiveness and then you share it with one another. And so that's the, the last thing that I wanted to say about things that we could take away from this way of thinking about the church and entering into it. A lot of this um, still might feel a little bit abstract and I wanted to see if I could use one illustration that might make it a little bit more domestic. We have um, some friends, Thomas and Lisa Boehm, who I met when I was in Israel. And he's a, a Messianic Jewish uh, man and she is a Messianic Jewish woman and they're married and they have this beautiful family. And he's a professor at Wheaton. And so this Saturday, we went to their house for, I'm um, sorry, this Friday night, we went to their house for Shabbat. And Shabbat is the Sabbath dinner that um, a good Jewish family every Friday has. And um, it's a wonderful gathering around table. It's a very homely, home life, loving context. And um, what I, what I experienced there was just so beautiful to me. I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to forget it. And in fact, I want it. I want to live it in our own home. And I actually want you all to live it in your homes. I want us to somehow figure out how to make it happen. So one of the things that happens in the beginning of it is it starts off with the mother praying and bringing the blessing of God. And she prays over the candles and she, she breathes in the blessing of the kingdom. She lights these two candles and she breathes that blessing into the family and she inaugurates the whole service. And Lisa was explaining that this is the first thing that happened and it's a matriarchal work. She has an authority in her home. It's a God-designed authority as the woman and the mother of the house to do that. And so she begins it. And then the next thing that happens, not too much longer after that, is that the fathers get with their wives and they bless their wives. And we did very specific blessings. And I, you know, he said, Eric, I think you'll be up for it. Why don't you do this too? So he prayed a blessing over his wife, Lisa. It's very profound because he, of course, he knows her so well. He's naming 
true and beautiful things and encouraging her with these prayers. And the power of a husband's blessing over a wife is just a wonderful thing. You could just see life happening. And he's saying it, he's looking into her eyes a lot too. I love that about what Jesus, he says, when he gets, when he raises and you, your joy isn't going to be taken away, he says, I see you. And, and that was kind of what I was watching is he's seeing her, she's seeing him, and there's, he's saying true things and he's building up his wife and some joy is coming out. Joy. Because he's saying true things, true words. And then I prayed for Jeannie. I won't go into the specifics of that. Then after that, um, the, um, the wives bless their husbands, specifically, in a very similar way. And then the fathers go around and pray specific blessings over each child, all the boys and girls around the table. And man, was it incredibly, I mean, it was like, there was joy in that room. There was joy, not just because we were saying true things, but we were doing it in the power of the Spirit. Because this home had been built on Christ, and there was a true expression of God the Father and a true expression of mothering in that place. And it was so beautiful. It was so life-giving. And there was so much joy. Well, I, I also noticed something really cool that Lisa did. Um, after we had done the prayers, she's handing food to the people around the table, and she's, she's saying, um, first of all, Jeannie, I noticed that Eric prayed this for you. She's remembering those words. She's, oh, I thought that was so beautiful. And she's reminding Jeannie of the, the words. And she's actually embodying a kind of a wisdom there that, because she's reminding Jeannie of the words. And then she said the same thing to Noah. I noticed your dad prayed for you this. I thought that was really, what did that mean to you? And you could see, once again, the words were building. And it was a move of the Spirit. It's true mothering. Man, I think we need this. I think the church needs it bad. I think the world needs us to grow into it. Lord Jesus, you have made all provision for us to grow and return to being your children, to being sons and daughters of God. Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom that we need to know how to take these words to heart and how to live them in the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can be um, true light in this dark world. In this cynical world, this, this world that um, is often about power and self-service, and it's dangerous, Lord. Lord, I pray that the church would recover her true mission, her true way of being. Lord, I pray that uh, children would come to know you and that they would grow up safe. I pray, Lord, that many spiritual mothers and fathers, many spiritual elders would be raised up in the context of Holy Mother Church under you, God, our Father. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave your blood, your water, your Holy Spirit, that we could come into your family. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for making us sons and daughters of the Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.